This is the Pick Your Poison podcast. I'm your host, Dr. JP, and I'm here to share my passion for poisons in this interactive show. Will our patients survive this podcast? It's up to you and the choices you make. Our episode today is called Loco. What poison makes you mad as a hatter? What's the brand new antidote for it, hot off the presses? And what medicine comes from a bean used in African witchcraft trials? Listen to find out. Today's episode starts in the ER. You finish setting a broken wrist, then check who's next on the list of patients waiting to be seen. Room 4, a 16-year-old with altered mental status, meaning anything from mildly agitated, psychotic, or violent on one end of the spectrum to lethargic, unconscious, or basically dead on the other end. You walk into the room to determine what exactly the chief complaint means. The patient is sitting on the stretcher awake. He's alive, so it's our job to keep him that way. You ask how he's feeling. He turns to the sound of your voice, but just blinks a few times and doesn't answer. His mother is sitting at the bedside. She says, quote, he just isn't right. This is one of my favorites, along with I just don't feel good and I'm dizzy. The medical problems causing these complaints range from a cold with a runny nose to a heart attack with an impending cardiac arrest. So we're going to have to narrow it down. The patient reaches up as if to pluck something from the air, though nothing is there. He mumbles some incomprehensible words. You ask the mother more questions. She says he has no past medical history. He was fine this morning. This afternoon, he seemed mildly confused, then progressively worsened. She keeps repeating, something's not right. Mom can't give us any more, so let's move on to the physical exam. You review his vital signs, and something definitely isn't right. His temperature is elevated at 102.8 Fahrenheit. His heart rate is 142 beats per minute, very fast. His blood pressure is high at 160 over 80. Not dangerously so, but high for a 16-year-old. His respiratory rate is slightly fast and his oxygen level is normal. The patient mumbles his name when you ask, but doesn't answer the year or the month. He has large dilated pupils, medriasis in medical terms. His skin is flushed. The exam is otherwise unremarkable. In short, this is delirium. You tell the nurse to start IV fluids and give some Tylenol. The ER workup includes basic labs, a chest x-ray, a urine specimen, and these days for sure, a COVID swap. Fever and infection are very common causes of delirium. The list of infectious possibilities is extremely long. Fortunately, this is a toxicology podcast, not an infectious disease one. That said, the list of toxins causing altered mental status is also huge. We could spend all day making this list, forget about treating the patient, and not to mention all the other patients waiting to be seen. So we need to narrow it down more before we start listing the differential diagnosis. Fortunately, in this case, one of the vital signs can help us focus in on the potential causes. So question number one, which vital sign will help us the most in figuring out what's wrong with this kid? A, the temperature, B, the heart rate, C, the blood pressure, or D, the respiratory rate. The answer, A, the temperature is the most useful vital sign here. Yeah, his heart rate is high, but the list of toxins raising the heart rate is long. His blood pressure and respiratory rate are high, but really not high enough to point us toward a specific diagnosis. 
The list of toxins causing an elevated temperature, hyperthermia, is relatively small and very interesting, at least in my opinion. So let's move right to the toxicologic causes of hyperthermia and narrow it down from there. There are six main categories. First, malignant hyperthermia, very dangerous and even more rare. Basically occurring after exposure to general anesthesia in patients with a genetic mutation of the muscles. It occasionally occurs outside of the operating room, but it's not likely in our patient. Categories 2 and 3 are neuroleptic malignant syndrome and serotonin syndrome. Both occur from exposure to psychiatric medicines. Neuroleptic is an old-fashioned word for antipsychotics, and serotonin syndrome is often caused by antidepressants. Mom denies the patient takes any meds himself and says there are no psych prescriptions in the house. There is a physical exam finding I'd check for right away to point me toward or away from these two diagnoses. What is it? Muscle tone. Neuroleptic malignant syndrome causes lead pipe rigidity where the limbs are stiff and resist movement. Serotonin syndrome causes the opposite, hyperreflexia or overactive muscle responses. Our patient's muscle tone is normal. And while this doesn't definitively exclude categories two and three, if you consider he doesn't have a history of exposure, taken together, it's not very likely. The next category is alcohol and benzodiazepine withdrawal. Benzos remember drugs like Xanax or Valium. Alcohol withdrawal could definitely look like this. What's that? Did I hear you say he's only 16? How could he have an alcohol use disorder? Well, I'd love to agree that this makes alcohol withdrawal impossible. Sadly, I can't. Withdrawal is associated with muscle finding as well, tremor, which he doesn't have. So while it's not impossible, again, this category seems unlikely. The last two categories have similar symptoms, so let's discuss the similarities, then how we differentiate them. Sympathomimetic use, so cocaine or meth, for example, can cause fever and delirium. This is due to activation and overstimulation of the sympathetic nervous system, the fight-or-flight response. Anticholinergic toxicity is the other category, and it looks very similar because it's suppression of the parasympathetic or rest and digest system. It isn't hard to imagine how activating fight or flight is similar to suppressing rest and digest. Either way, the body's checks and balances are out of order, and both result in hypertension, high blood pressure, tachycardia, the fast heart rate, and hyperthermia. So how do we tell these two categories apart? There is a distinguishing feature on physical exam. Make sure your gloves are on because we need to check his armpits. What's the difference? Wet versus dry. If the patient is hot and sweaty or wet, this is a sign of sympathomimetic toxicity. Hot and dry points to anticholinergic toxicity. Our patient, you try not to wrinkle your nose as you slide your gloved fingers around his armpit. Dry. So this is an anticholinergic toxidrome. The patient continues to reach for and pick at things that are not there. Imagine someone trying to grab dust motes from the air. This unusual behavior will lead an experienced toxicologist right to the diagnosis, because for some reason, it's very typical of anticholinergic toxicity. Mom tells you he can't urinate to give us the urine specimen. Urinary retention is another feature. So there's no test to confirm our diagnosis, but the symptoms all add up, and we can be pretty confident we're on the right track. The patient shouts something incomprehensible, then gets up from the bed. He starts moving toward the door, ripping off the cardiac monitor as he goes. I say moved because he's not exactly walking. He's stumbling and lurching around. Should we respect his wishes and let him walk out? No way. First, he's too confused to have rational decision-making capacity. 
Second, regardless of his ability to reason, he's about to fall and injure himself. You and mom gently push him back into bed. He returns to mumbling and picking at things. What is anticholinergic toxicity? It's the opposite of the toxins we discussed in prior episodes, The New Guy and Three Little Steps. Medical students use the following mnemonic to remember it. Mad as a hatter, hot as a hair, dry as a bone, blind as a bat, and full as a flask. Mad as in delirious. Hot, meaning fever. Blind, not literally, but enlarged pupils like having your eyes dilated at the eye doctors. Full as a flask refers to the inability to urinate. Listen to the next episode to find out why we have the expression mad as a hatter in English. The patient gets out of bed again. I didn't mention earlier he's a strapping 200-pound 16-year-old. This time, when you try to put him back into bed, he starts bellowing, yanks out his IV, and overturns a metal surgical tray with a loud crash. As is often the case in toxicology and emergency medicine, we'd better treat first and figure out what happened later. There is an antidote for anticholinergic toxicity. Question two, what is it? A, fentanyl, B, naloxone or Narcan, C, physostigmine, or D, atropine? The answer, C, physostigmine, brand name antilurium, a play on anti-delirium. If you said D, atropine, uh uh-oh, our patient did not survive this episode because you just made him worse. Physostigmine is a cholinergic agent, so it works to reverse the anticholinergic poison. It's found in the calabar bean from West Africa. The history of the calabar bean is fascinating. It was used as a trial bean. What's a trial bean? Something used in a trial, for example, witchcraft, to determine guilt versus innocence. How does this work? Well, obviously it doesn't, but an accused person on trial ate the bean. The theory in the old days was the innocent would be fine while the guilty would die similar to trial by water, where women accused of witchcraft proved their innocence by sinking while the guilty floated. If you swallow a bean whole, you're not likely to develop toxicity. If you bite it, physostigmine is released, causing cholinergic toxicity. And if you remember, other cholinergic toxins include chemical weapons like VX and rodenticides like aldicarb and pesticides. Some suggest the innocent didn't hesitate to swallow the bean and were fine. The guilty were afraid to swallow, bit the bean, and died. I seriously doubt there was much, if any, rational thinking involved in these proceedings. Anyway, I could go on with more fascinating facts, but I won't. European missionaries brought the calabar bean back, and eventually scientists discovered the active ingredient and its medical utility. So you order a dose. Then the pharmacist calls, there's no physostigmine. Physostigmine was a great antidote. Why was? We no longer have it. Why not? You've probably heard about drug shortages. Welcome to modern medicine. In recent years, we've had shortages of drugs from essentials like morphine to basics like normal saline for IV fluid. The single manufacturer of physostigmine went out of business. Uh Uh-oh, what do we do now? We can give benzodiazepines like lorazepam or Ativan. It will work to sedate them, and we do use them to treat anticholinergic toxicity. The problem is it's easy to overshoot and cause too much sedation. We don't want to accidentally oversedate a 16-year-old, causing him to become unconscious and in need of a ventilator. But good news, you've just returned from the North American Clinical Toxicology Conference in Montreal. If you paid attention instead of just eating poutine while you were there, you saw some posters with research about a promising new antidote. 
Rivastigmine sounds like physostigmine because it works similarly. Rivastigmine is used to treat Alzheimer's disease, and it's often in patch form in the U.S. The patients in the posters had anticholinergic toxicity and got better with a rivastigmine patch. Genius! So either option here is reasonable, benzos or rivastigmine. The benzos treat the symptoms, namely agitation, but don't directly treat the problem. Or you can talk to mom about an experimental but pharmacologically sound solution, a true antidote. The side effects of the patch? You guessed it, cholinergic toxicity like the calabar beans. According to the posters at the conference, the symptoms are generally mild and improve once the patch is removed. I'd give a dose of lorazepam to keep him from trying to leave, then let mom decide from there. The lorazepam dose keeps him in bed, but it doesn't do much else. Mom decides on the patch, and it works with surprisingly good success. An hour later, his mental status is almost back to normal, his temperature is down, and his other vital signs have improved. Perfect, and it's exciting to use a new antidote in place of one we've lost. Now that he's treated, we still have to figure out what caused this. In prior episodes, we've discussed one of the very first anticholinergic drugs. It's an antidote for, not surprisingly, cholinergic toxicity. What is it? Question three, A, naloxone or Narcan, B, charcoal, C, Prussian blue, or D, atropine. The answer is D, atropine. That said, this kid probably didn't get into atropine at home. It's pretty much found only in the hospital or maybe in military stockpiles. So what else causes anticholinergic toxicity? Once again, it's a huge list. Lots and lots of medicines on the list. One of the most common overdoses we see causing it is diphenhydramine or Benadryl. The list includes other antihistamines, psychiatric medicines, drugs for Parkinson's disease. Mom's phone beeps with a text. A friend's mother says the teens were in the woods and ate a plant. Phew, this gives us something to focus in on. Some famously very poisonous plants cause anticholinergic toxicity. You've probably heard of belladonna or deadly nightshade and mandragora or mandrake. These plants are in the Solanaceae or deadly nightshade family. Tobacco is in this family. It includes poisons so toxic they've instilled fear for centuries, but also includes such non-deadly plants as tomatoes, potatoes, eggplants, and peppers. Short detour, people in the U.S. and Europe believed tomatoes were poisonous in the 17 and 1800s. The plants were initially cultivated in Europe for their beauty in gardens, not for their delicious taste. There are belladonna alkaloids in tomato plants, but only in the stems and the leaves, not in the fruit. That's why it's safe to eat. Did our patient eat a tobacco plant? No, this isn't nicotine toxicity. Maybe his friend tried to kill him with mandrake or belladonna, but probably not. There is a plant that attracts those interested in getting high, often teenagers. Deterus stramonium or jimson weed. It's also called thorn apple, moonflower, the devil's weed, and the devil's trumpet. The name that's most telling, in my opinion, loco weed. I doubt most people get the high they were expecting after eating it. Jimson weed grows all over the U.S. and all over the world. The plant contains 28 different belladonna alkaloids. The two main alkaloids are atropine and scopolamine. And the amount of these alkaloids varies within the plant and also changes with the plant's location. Interestingly, the amount of CO2 in the environment changes the amount of toxin in the plant. So as CO2 levels increase, like with global warming, plants increase atropine and scopolamine production meaning climate change is making plants more poisonous. 
And increased CO2 often also, excuse me, increases morphine concentrations in narcotics. This is absolutely fascinating. So most people eat seeds from inside the seed pod, and each pod contains 50 to 100 seeds. 15 to 20 seeds are enough to be fatal. Jimson weed exposures occur intentionally, as I mentioned, and unintentionally. It's contaminated things like honey, tea, and stew. There were a couple of recent outbreaks in 2022 in Australia and Italy, and these were due to spinach contaminated with jimson weed. Both atropine and scopolamine are used medicinally. They were used in ancient times and still today, along with a third alkaloid in these plants called hyoscyamine. Mandrake use was described in 4th century BC in Greece for use in wounds, gout, and as a love potion. Since then, use of these plants as anti-asthmatics, anti-spasmodics, narcotics, and anesthetics is described. Atropine was extracted from Atropa belladonna in 1831 and is still used to treat slow heart rates and used as an antidote for chemical weapons and pesticides. I'm willing to bet you've experienced the side effects of belladonna and mandrake plants yourself. Yep, you heard me right. Atropine is used in ophthalmology along with scopolamine to dilate the pupils. They're in a class of drugs called cycloplegics. In fact, this is how the plant got the name belladonna. It was named after its use by women in the Renaissance as a beauty aid. Yes, a deadly poison and a cosmetic. See also lead, arsenic, mercury, thallium. Large pupils were considered attractive, and women used juice from Atropa belladonna to get this look, so the plant was named belladonna or beautiful woman. Some say Cleopatra and Roman women did the same. According to modern studies, people still find large pupils attractive. Is it a coincidence that your eyes dilate when you see someone you're attracted to? Probably not. Beauty is one thing, but honestly, how could these women see? Have you ever tried to drive or read after leaving the eye doctor's office? How did jimson weed get its name? Datura is from a Hindi word for the plants, and jimson weed is derived from Jamestown, Virginia. This was one of the original European settlements in the U.S., and according to one report in 1705, British soldiers sent to quell Bacon's Rebellion ate jimson weed. Apparently, they sat around naked in their own feces, grinning like monkeys. This is just one report, and it can't be confirmed, but the description sounds about right. However, it also says the effects lasted for two weeks, which really isn't true, so who knows? In reality, the symptoms last for a day or two, typically, after ingesting it. Occasionally, it lasts for a little bit longer because anticholinergics delay stomach emptying, and that can cause delayed absorption. But either way, we don't expect the symptoms to last for longer than a few days. The plants have a dark history in both ancient and modern times. Belladonna was believed to be part of witch's flying potion along with wolfbane, a plant we discussed previously, maybe due to the sensation of flying that some report after exposure. In popular culture, not quite pop culture though, some believe Belladonna was the poison Shakespeare described in Romeo and Juliet. In history, there are reports that the Romans used it to poison enemies' food reserves during warfare, and some have suggested it was the poison used to kill emperors Claudius and Nero. Others believe it's part of the Haitian zombie powder. In modern times, there are reports of criminals blowing scopolamine into the faces of victims, leading them to become, quote, zombies, and making them prey to both robbery and rape. It's called burundanga apologies if I'm mispronouncing that, in South America, meaning devil's breath. Unlike the fearsome reputation of belladonna and mandrake, fatalities from jimson weed are rare, but they are reported. 
Datura has been used in drug-facilitated sexual assault and robbery as well. There's a case report about a 35-year-old man who traveled to Java. He was found dead on arrival at a local hospital. His body was returned to France, where an autopsy revealed the presence of scopolamine, atropine, and hyoscyamine. The man's tour guide admitted to giving him a poisoned drink to rob him. All right, so back to our patient. He's admitted to the hospital for monitoring. The next day, he's awake and alert and back to normal. With mom out of the room, he admits to ingesting 10 seeds of Jimson weed to get high. The monitor shows his heart rate is low in the 50s, so you remove the rivastigmine patch. His heart rate improves and his mental status remains normal. He's discharged uneventfully. This is a fictional case, as are all our cases, to protect the innocent, but it is based on real poisonings. There's one last cool story I want to share with you about an ingenious bit of pharmacologic knowledge from ancient Greece. The Greeks knew Jimson weed caused hallucinations. If you remember the story of the Odyssey, the sorceress Circe is said to have turned Odysseus's crew into pigs. On his way to rescue them, the god Hermes advises Odysseus to protect himself from Circe with a plant called moly. Some have suggested the crew were given Jimson weed, not turned into pigs, but the hallucinations led them to believe that they were animals. And then moly might have been the snowdrop plant. Why the snowdrop? The plant contains a cholinergic compound, galantamine, a natural antidote for anticholinergic toxicity. If Circe was poisoning the sailors with ginseng weed, galantamine would have protected Odysseus. Is it true? Who knows, but really interesting. We use galantamine today like rivastigmine to treat Alzheimer's disease. The last question for today, which famous artist's painting of Jimson Weed sold for $44 million? A. Monet, B. Georgia O'Keeffe, C. Van Gogh, D. Klimt. Post your answers on our Twitter or Instagram feeds, both at PickPoison1. Follow the accounts and you'll see the answer when I post it. Remember, never try anything on this podcast at home or anywhere else. Thanks for your attention. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed making the podcast. It helps if you subscribe, leave reviews, and or tell your friends. All the episodes are available on our website, pickpoison.com, Apple, Spotify, or any other location where podcasts are available. Additional sources like references and photos are available on the website along with transcripts. While I'm a real doctor, this podcast is fictional, meant for entertainment and educational purposes, not medical advice. If you have a medical problem, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you, and until next time, take care and stay safe.